today we're kicking off a new series here at E3 called Expect Resurrection, where in preparation for Easter, we're going to dive into this central, foundational, biblical concept called resurrection, which, what I want to posit for you this morning, is a concept that I believe is maybe one of the most under-considered biblical ideas in all of Christian theology, which may sound strange because for most of us we would think, well, everyone's heard that Jesus died and returned to life, right? It's not like at least everyone has heard of this thing as a potential belief, correct? However, what I have found is that though upheld as important, the why of resurrection is actually pretty unclear for many Christians. In fact, when I was growing up in the church, and maybe you'll relate to this, it was largely kind of yada yada away as this one-time miracle unrelated to the bigger biblical story that essentially only happened to prove Jesus' specialness, that he was divine. Anyone else? And what I want you to consider, at least this morning, is that I think that is a huge, huge mistake. Now, to set up why, I'm going to do what I always do, which is I'm going to talk about movies. In particular, I want to talk about the storytelling gimmick that really just grinds my gears. It's one of these things that I truly loathe in movies, what I call the magic bullet narrative device, where effectively a character or a community that's undergone intense trauma just gets over it after they encounter some magic bullet. A plot device, that, in my opinion, is one of the laziest things you can do as a writer. In particular, I want to explore three forms that this takes in modern movies that just drive me absolutely bananas. The first is the manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> Woo! This is a trope that became very popular in the 2000s through films like Garden State and 500 Days of Summer. And what these stories are about are they're about an emotionally crippled male character who after a lifetime of heartbreak or trauma meets a quirky woman with no desires of her own who fulfills all of their romantic dreams. And then what happens, well, ultimately through the relationship with this manic pixie dream girl, they just get all better, right? Their entire past is healed, they become self-actualized, they grow up, etc. And this is a deeply problematic trope, y'all, for reasons I'm not even gonna start to get into today, but it's a perfect example of this magic bullet device, right? We have a lifetime of trauma and then bam, the right girl comes along and all better. <laughs> Second example, the quick fix therapy trope, which uses a misrepresentation of therapy as a narrative magic bullet to kind of move the plot along. And I think the best example of this is actually a movie that I love. I know, that is Goodwill Hunting. Again, I love this movie, I love this movie. For those who do not know, Goodwill Hunting focuses on this math progeny who, after experiencing and never dealing with incredibly violent childhood abuse, gets forced into therapy, leading to this beautiful closing scene where he names his trauma for the first time in his life, after which he's effectively depicted as healed, ready to go about his life. It's a powerfully, emotionally affecting scene for anyone who's seen it. It makes you cry every single time. But I also need to point out that this is not an accurate depiction of how trauma gets healed. In reality, 
Naming the source of one's trauma marks the beginning of the therapeutic process of healing, not its end. Anyone ever been in therapy know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Thus, though I love this movie, I simultaneously have to admit that it employs one of these magic bullets to just, boom, get the healing done so he can move on at the end of the story. And the final example, and y'all, this is gonna make this is gonna make you mad, but I'm a pastor, and it's my job to speak hard truths. So let's talk about the just play ball sports movie trope, which gets executed to perfection in. Yeah, boo! Remember the Titans. And y'all, I am a 90s kid. Do not get me wrong. I have great nostalgia for Remember the Titans. However, it embodies how this trope can get used in kind of a more insidious way. Because if you think about this movie, what happens? Well, essentially, it's a trope where just playing sports together is upheld as the magic bullet answer not to just individual trauma, but to major societal injustice. Like, in this movie, America's legacy of racism and Jim Crow. And don't get me wrong, like any good red-blooded American, I could watch Denzel Washington give inspiring speeches for the rest of my life. But y'all, obviously, just playing football together does not remotely address the roots of America's history of racial oppression, much less its very complicated pathway of reconciliation. Y'all know what I'm talking about. So though a very inspiring movie, obviously it's an example of this magic bullet phenomenon. And yeah, yeah, everyone hates Mike now. I'm okay with that. <laughs> and again, I love many of these, and I also get that their unreality provides an enjoyable respite from our complicated world. I get that the love us watch these movies because they do not reflect the world in which we live, which is okay. But I also still think it's important to acknowledge that each in its own way misrepresents how complex realities like trauma, suffering, grief, heartbreak, oppression, and abuse get healed. Such things aren't fixed with magic bullets, magic resolutions. They don't do justice to what's gone wrong in the broken human relationships of this world. Am I right? And ultimately, I start here because I think this is why this concept of resurrection is so important to the Bible. Because what I believe is that without it, we will inevitably embrace a magic bullet resolution for God's story, which is a tragedy. Let me explain what I mean. There's this common framework that's particularly prevalent in evangelicalism today, which centers the entire Bible around this one big idea that is escape. Generally speaking, it goes like this. We live on Earth, this physical, corrupted, bad place that's defined by evil, tragedy, injustice, etc. And the gospel is about God through Jesus saving us by teleporting us, boop, from Earth to heaven, this spiritual good place, usually after we die, right? Anyone tracking with me so far? That is until some future point when God's gonna decide that he's ready just to throw this whole Earth thing into his cosmic dumpster, just do away with it, after which we'll live forever in spiritual heaven, getting everything we never got in this life and worship forever with our Lamborghinis. <laughs> All to say, 
What this framework is about is that we have human history, which is full of all this misery and all this tragedy and all this suffering, and then magic bullet, poof, it all just goes away, and we're happy forever. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And I don't want to shame anyone. Again, this is common. This is prevalent. This is what I was taught growing up. But I'm also just going to be blunt. That is a wild misrepresentation of the biblical worldview and story. One that I would argue has done real harm to real people, much less our Christian witness on this earth. And that's because how we think God intends to bring a resolution to his story will inevitably shape how we live within it presently. And this framework neither honors nor addresses the tangible, real suffering of human history while subtly teaching us to neglect or even hate our physicality, limiting the Christian hope entirely to the afterlife while creating a disregard for this present physical world because why would we care about this place if God's just gonna throw it in the dumpster at the end of the story anyway? Are y'all tracking with me so far? And again, what I wanna posit today is that I believe fundamentally that the Bible actually offers a far better resolution to this world's story. One that's grounded not in escape or magic bullets, but in these profound concepts of physical resurrection and new creation through which God intends to both address and redeem the tragedy of this story. Everything that's taken place here, good, bad, and ugly. So that is where we're going to go. This morning in particular, we're going to focus on the why of resurrection and to explore this, whew, we're going to dive into everyone's favorite biblical book, which is Revelation. Who's ready? Dragons, oh my. For those unaware, Revelation is the last and by far the strangest book of the Bible, one that folks either don't engage with at all or like way, 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 way too much. At least that's my experience with this book. And that's because it's written in this really odd genre that though prevalent in Jesus' first century context is totally lost today. It's this genre called Jewish apocalyptic literature. And immediately our misunderstandings start popping up because as modern people, when we hear apocalypse, what do we think of? The end of the world, right? Nuclear holocaust, zombies, etc. However, apocalypse does not mean that in the Bible. No, in scripture, apocalypses in Greek, also translated as revelation, apocalypse describes something hidden that gets revealed. Or for this genre, it describes an experience where God empowers an individual to view their present events from his cosmic perspective over all of history which then the author describes symbolically. And that's what Revelation is all about. That's why I need you to understand this morning. The author, John, is writing to these early Christians who are undergoing this immense Roman persecution. I'm talking arrest, torture, execution. And in that scenario, John shares this vision of their present suffering as seen from God's cosmic view, revealing that those things look horrible, 
Christ is still king. And more importantly that, what John's trying to convey is that God's story is still on the right track. It's still heading to the conclusion that God promised. All of which John conveys by weaving together symbols from the Bible and his political world into this apocalyptic genre, which his audience would have understood implicitly, and we certainly do not. I always like to make the comparison to science fiction, right? So we have grown up with the sci-fi genre, correct? Thus, when we watch, say, Star Trek, does anyone here think that's a documentary? <laughs> does anyone here think that's an exact prediction of the future? No, we implicitly understand the genre. We get that it's like both an allegory and it's also kind of for fun, but it also is maybe a little bit the author's trying to predict where things might go if taken to their exaggerated conclusions, right? And we get that without having to explain that as we watch, say, Star Wars. Now, I want you to imagine, take Star Trek, go to 40 AD, show it to a farmer, and just say, what's this about? <laughs> what misconceptions would they come up with? They think it's a prophecy, a prediction. They think it's nonsense, probably. What is a television, right? Are you guys tracking with me on this? The audience of Revelation understood what this was without having to get the training wheels, the explanation, without having us dive deep into the genre because they grew up with it. We do not. All to said, what I want you to get is that we are entering into alien, alien territory. However, when Revelation is met on its own terms, it offers a profound message of hope if we are willing to be humble and open-minded as we navigate this strange land. Amen? Amen. So let's dive in. Now today, we're just focusing on Revelation's conclusion. You see, for, 40, or for 20 chapters, John symbolically represents the suffering of these Christians before building to this future vision of Jesus returning to defeat and remove evil from God's good world. Climaxing in chapter 21 with the symbolic depiction of the results of Christ's victory over evil, the resolution of God's story. And that's where we pick up today. We begin in Revelation 21, verse 1, where John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. Is that not one of the most beautiful texts in the whole Bible? I mean, it's a rich, dense, symbolic text that could probably take 800 hours for me to explain, which I'm not going to do today. You're going to get to go to lunch. Don't worry. However, for today, what I want to do is I just want to highlight two central elements of this. First, let me ask you this. Does John depict anyone going up to heaven in this? No, he depicts the exact opposite, right? He depicts heaven coming down where? To earth. Hold that thought. And second, this idea is reinforced by this repeated language of new, a new heaven, a new earth, God making everything new. Language that's actually incredibly easy for us to misunderstand. Because you see, in Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, 
there are two different words that actually get translated as new in English. The first is neos, which who's seen the matrix? Neo, right? That's where that comes from, neos. Neos describes newness in terms of time. For example, the birth of a new baby, right? Where something new, neos, comes into existence that didn't exist before. That's one form of new. But then there's another form that's kainos. And kainos is a different thing. See, what kainos describes is newness in terms of quality. So a new shirt in the sense that you had a shirt, it got dirty, and then it got washed off, correct? That's how kainos describes a thing, something that gets renewed. And you're probably like, so what? Nerd! <laughs> but this is important, because which do you think John uses here, neos or kainos? Kainos. It's a kainos, heaven and earth. Behold, I am making all things kainos. In other words, it's not God creating a neos creation, but rather God bringing about a kainos creation. Not all new things, but the renewal of all things. And y'all, that matters. That matters a great deal, I believe. See, for John, the resolution of God's story isn't about escapism. It's not about God junking creation to start over. It's about God's healing presence coming to transform and renew this creation. It's about the reunion of heaven and earth. And this is an incredibly complicated idea that I think needs to be unpacked. So naturally, as a great teacher, I'm going to do so with hula hoops. So again, I want to explain this. Again, as 21st century Christians, we're usually taught to think of heaven, right, and earth as fully separated places. Am I right? We have heaven, good spiritual place, where God lives somewhere else, while earth's this separate evil place, and it's physical, and it's where we live, and it's the worst. And thus, our primary reason for being here on earth is to escape to their heaven when we die. But does John believe that is what God's story is all about? No. And that's because what I want to posit is that that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the terms heaven and earth, and what they mean in Scripture. You see, biblically, the terms heaven and earth either literally denote the sky and the ground, or they are used metaphorically to distinguish between God's space and human space, heaven and earth. Nothing controversial so far, right? We're all tracking with Mike? Good, because here's where it gets interesting. Though these spaces are distinguishable in their quality, they are not understood as being fully separate in the Bible. In fact, in Genesis, where we find the original intention for creation depicted in the Garden of Eden, what are these spaces doing? They are fully overlapped. Humanity, made in God's image, lives in direct relationship with God, working directly alongside him to care for his good world, following his will. God's space, human space, were intended to be like this. However, how's the story go? Does it stay this way? No. Nope, humanity rebels because God gives them free will and we're really bad at using that thing to make good choices, kind of like my toddler. And they choose to try to impose their own wills upon creation, apart from their creator. And what happens? We find this cosmic ripping apart 
of these two spaces, the ripping apart of heaven and earth, God's space, human space, and thus from Genesis 3 onward, earth or human space becomes defined by competing wills rather than the creator will alone. And we get this implicitly, right? Go out into your world and what do you see? We see human beings who start creating our own little kingdoms in the world where we get to define good and evil for ourselves, usually in ways that benefit me and don't benefit you. Anyone see that in our world? Basically, that's what it's describing. It's describing what happens. And what is the consequence of humanity turning earth into a space of competing wills? Is it good or bad? Bad. It produces tragedy, suffering, greed, violence, all these things that have ruined God's good world. And yet, does the God of creation leave it or us to this fate? No. That's not who God is. No, instead, throughout the Bible, what we find are these stories of God creating these pockets where heaven and earth overlap once more. The burning bush, Jacob's ladder, the tabernacle, the temple, all spaces where God's presence does what? It dwells directly with humanity again, where heaven, God's space, and earth, humanity's space, are brought into an overlap once more. Y'all, that's always been the goal of the biblical story, finally fixing that fissure between heaven and earth, between humanity and God's self, fully restoring the union of his space and our space by dealing with what's gone wrong and its consequence, evil, sin, death, decay. God setting his world right. Are y'all tracking with me so far? That's the hope of scripture. This right here, not escape, reunion. This promised future that the Hebrew prophets depicted as this act of new creation, this divine healing, that would be so transformative that it would amount to a total renewal of our cosmos, which they claim, naturally, would include us. How would it include us? Who wants to guess? Through a little concept called resurrection, where we, human beings, as part of this new creation moment, would experience this all-encompassing divine restoration, both physically and spiritually, where we too would get wrapped up in God's renewing of all things, being restored back to what we were created to be, image bearers of God, mirrors of our creator in his creation, following his will alone. That's what John's describing here in this powerful symbolism, this reunion of heaven and earth that will restore all things, that has always been the promise of the biblical story. But here's what's really important about that. You see, for John and the earliest Christians, this was by no means just some future promise that never crashed into our present reality. You know, see, John clearly believes, in terms of writing this letter, that this understanding, this vision of the end of God's story, its resolution, that he believes that it somehow, some way, can transform how his audience lives in response to this horrible oppression and suffering that they are going through. And that's because of a core conviction of the gospel story. See, what we find over 
and over and over and over again in the Bible is that new creation and resurrection weren't realities that were meant to just reside in the clouds or the afterlife, no. In fact, both were believed to be accessible here and now. The gospel writers believed that both had begun crashing into our world through Jesus Christ and those that followed him. In Jesus, see, what they believed was that they had witnessed this beachhead of heaven invading earth where God made flesh entered into the suffering of this physical world, showed us what it means to be human again and confronted everything that we have broken in this place. That on the cross, our creator God neither ignored nor escaped nor erased the pain of history, but rather took it into himself all the brokenness of this world, past, present, and future, every innocent cry, every act of violence, every moment of despair and death, and responded with peace, love, self-sacrifice, mercy, grace, before rising, renewed, and what? Resurrected on the other side. For them, Christ's resurrection wasn't just about a dead person miraculously returning to life. It was the climactic, revelatory moment where God took evil's greatest tool of death into himself and achieved victory over it, proclaiming definitively that his love for broken humanity is stronger than death and that in his story, evil would not get the last word on his good world. Can I get an amen? amen. For them, Christ's resurrection was a tidal wave of new creation and resurrection not happening just in the present, but flooding into our world here with an intended purpose of transforming us into the invasion of heaven into earth, into a people who through Jesus dragged the resolution of God's story into the present moment by becoming foretastes and pockets of heaven and earth overlapping once more in a world marred still by sin and death. This is what it means to be a Christian, to believe that the Holy Spirit guides us into regeneration and new creation and resurrection. That's why resurrection reframes everything. That's why it's so critical. Our Christian hope isn't just about the afterlife, y'all. It's not just about escape through a magic bullet. It's not just about hating our God-given physical bodies. No, the resurrection grounds our hope in God's faithfulness and his promise that he will not give up on what he has made that he will bring heaven's renewal here. And that's everything. That's the resolution of God's story. That does justice to human history. Because in that, God acknowledges and redeems our pain, not by ignoring, escaping, or perpetuating it, but by embracing our tragedy as his own and through resurrection, growing, renewed life from it. That is a hope that we can find in the brokenness of our world. That's a hope that neither disregards God's world nor leaves us in despair over its brokenness because it reminds us that if we pulled back the curtain of reality, then we'd see that every time we let Jesus transform us, that every time we let Jesus move us to love our enemies, to give generously, to care for creation, to forgive, extend mercy, that in such moments, in every single one of them, what is actually happening is we are being wrapped up into God's inbreaking cosmic renewal and becoming pockets of resurrection, new creation, the renewal of heaven and earth here and now in this world. And y'all, that's mind-blowing, is it not? Has anyone ever thought of their daily life as being an opportunity to become the place where heaven and earth meets? Y'all, that's... Am I the only one? 
And to close, I want to make this real concrete. And I want to do that by talking about Bill Lang, an E3-er who uh, passed away three weeks ago. Because for me, Bill embodied this profoundly. You see, I first met Bill 10 years ago in Panahachal, Guatemala. And immediately, this old tattoo-covered man just drew me in because he just radiated serenity, peace, comfort in his own skill, and attributes that were magnetic to a depressive, run-down, broken addict like myself. I just wanted to learn from this person. I wanted to discover whatever it was that he'd found. And that's exactly what happened, because from Pana grew a relationship that has shaped me as much as ever I have ever had. See, over the last decade, Bill offered himself to me as mentor, closest friend, sponsor, spiritual father, pouring into me in ways that, in hindsight, are just the definition of grace. When I lost my best friend, Henry, in my early 20s, Bill comforted me. When I got sober, Bill taught me what it meant to embrace recovery. Learning to pray, becoming a father, a pastor, navigating my own mental health struggles every single time when I needed guidance, support, love, Bill was there, sharing his presence, sharing his wisdom, gained from a life of suffering, failure, transformation, redemption, teaching me so many spiritual truths that my life isn't about me, that we're exalted through humility, that we rise by falling, that we receive by giving, that we live by dying to ourselves, that we have been put on this earth to humbly and graciously give back all that we have been given, which is everything. And that is what Bill did. Bill gave himself to help heal me. Not because I'd earned it, but because that's just who he was. And y'all, that's what it means to become a pocket where heaven and earth meet. To become a person who sees Christ in whoever's in front of them. Who with humility and compassion seeks their blessing. Regardless of how sick, lost, and broken they are. Y'all, that's the end of God's story crashing into the present. Bill got that our future hope doesn't just reside in the clouds. It is meant to shape the present through broken people who find the love of God in the darkest places and then respond to that gift by becoming conduits of it themselves to the next person who needs it. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a pocket of new creation. That's resurrected life. That's who we're called to be as followers of a God who grows beautiful things from dust, pain, and death. And y'all, someone being willing to do that is what saved my life. But even more importantly, it taught me what it means to truly live. And that's good news. Amen.